Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good evening. I'm sincerely stoked that all of you are here. Just as Pastor Skip said, tonight is a sensitive subject. But uh, like any truth in the scripture, it's a necessary subject. And so it comes at an interesting time. Obviously, we're in the uh, study beyond the summer of love. Forty years ago, Woodstock took place. And yesterday was the 40th anniversary of the fourth and final day of Woodstock. It was supposed to only be three days, but it spilled over into a fourth day. And I'm just curious, is there anybody here with us tonight that was at Woodstock. Raise your hand. Wow, there's a couple of you. And I was just informed that uh, Sandy Dunn, one of our sound guys, that he was there. So uh, thank God those who were there are now here. Speaks to God's redemption. And for the rest of us uh, who were alive back then and could have gone, uh, thank God we were spared. Now, in February of 1967, just a few months before the so-called Summer of Love, there was a group known as the Buckinghams, and they had a hit song titled, Kind of a Drag. The song went to number one for two weeks in February. It reached number one on the uh, Billboard Hot 100. For those of you that are familiar with the song, you know that the chorus went something like this. Kind of a drag when your baby don't love you. Or for our purposes tonight, we might say kind of a drag when your baby don't love Jesus. And even more specifically for some, it's a total drag if your spouse doesn't love Jesus. So tonight we're going to be speaking to the subject of being unequally yoked. What is that? Simply stated, it's when a Christian is married to a non-Christian. It's a situation that if any of you who are not yet married, as you consider your choices, you need to be aware that it's something that's forbidden by God. He doesn't want you to do it because it's a situation that for those who live in it, boy, their lives are filled with a whole host of emotions. Both men and women experience this within God's body. But predominantly, women are those who suffer the most in this situation. This arrangement is a source of deep anguish, discomfort, and frustration for many. And it requires a great love and a great patience for each spouse who lives in a marriage that's unequally yoked. You know, some who live in this situation... They even feel resentment at times. Sometimes it's toward God. They don't like the fact that they're living unequally yoked in a marriage. Sometimes that resentment is even toward other believers. They look around and they see how seemingly happy these Christian couples are. And they struggle feeling resentment that they themselves don't share in that kind of joy. And some even feel resentment toward themselves. That in their marriage, they're the one that's saved, but their spouse isn't. And I want you to understand me loud and clear. 
Being unequally yoked can be one of the most challenging and uncomfortable circumstances for any Christian to live in. Being that that's what we're talking about tonight, let me just allude to something that we're not talking about tonight. We're not tonight going to speak about incompatibility or even just excessive differences that occur even within Christian marriages. Every marriage has incompatibilities. Of such, Billy Graham, at his 54th wedding anniversary celebration, was asked what his secret was to a successful marriage. And he said, well, Ruth and I are happily incompatible. (laughs) And another wise man simply said, what counts in making a marriage happy is not so much how compatible you are, but how you deal with incompatibility. So tonight, our subject is being unequally yoked. And to begin, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. What we want to look at first is the prohibition to being unequally yoked. And as you see there in the first half of verse 14, Paul says unequivocally, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, for many of us, we grew up in the city. And for others, we perhaps just aren't familiar with agriculture or even the culture of the Middle East during the time of the New Testament. So the first question we have that comes to our mind is, What is a yoke? Well, to Paul's audience, this was a very easily grasped analogy taken from the world of agriculture. In the first century, as is today, oxen were considered beasts of burden and often used in farming. And a double yoke was used to harness two oxen side by side. And so that in our minds, we grasp it even easier There's a couple of images that we're going to show on the screens here. The first of which is simply a double yoke. You can see most of them are made out of wood. They have some metal. And just to give you an idea of the size of some of these yokes, the next picture is going to show you how it compares to the size of a grown woman. And so the oxen is a big animal. These yokes oftentimes were very large. And then this final picture is a great picture of an evenly yoked pair of oxen. You see, this yoke was constructed to bind the animals together so that it could maximize their ability to work in harmony so that each would be carrying an equal share of the load. And something that's noteworthy is that even in an equal yoke, one that works, one just like the picture we showed you, if one pulls too far ahead or one holds back even just a little bit, it causes pain for both and both of their progress gets hindered. So this yoke actually can cause pain choking the one that pulls too far ahead or pinching the neck of the one that's lagging behind. So these two oxen, if they're wise, they'll cooperate with each other and learn to avoid the pain by moving forward at the same pace and in the same direction. So when these two animals submit to the arrangement of the yoke, they're able to make progress. They're able to go forward. But even when one doesn't, there's discomfort. And again, my friends, that speaks simply to the general challenges that exist even within a Christian marriage. The pinching, the pulling, the tugging. It's not easy. 
But it's particularly not easy when there's an unequal yoke. So what is an unequal yoke? Well, in the passage we read tonight, that word, or that phrase rather, unequal yoke, in the original language, is simply one word. It's the Greek word, heteros ugeo. Sounds technical. All it simply means is this, not the same kind, or to be mismatched. So what's the point of this passage? The point is simply this. God gives us a command to not be paired up with another kind or coupled to someone of a different sort. In other words, do not join in common spiritual enterprise with an unbeliever. And my friends, marriage for the Christian is a spiritual enterprise. But why does God prohibit this? Well, he prohibits it for two reasons. Number one, for what it does to God. And then secondly, for what it does to God's children. And he addresses this in a series of rhetorical questions. You might even look at these questions as sacred sarcasm. In fact, as I was reading this passage, I was thinking, boy, if there was an actor that was maybe playing the role of Paul here, who came to my mind was Robert De Niro. Kind of that sour, anguished face, looking at his subject almost with a a look of disbelief, like, I can't believe you're even asking this question. So let's see first what it does to God. What it does to him is it pollutes his holiness. As you continue reading with me in the latter part of verse 14 of chapter 6, Paul goes on to say, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? These are obviously rhetorical questions, the answer to which they have no relationship to one another. They should have no part with one another. They're not to be mixed in any way, shape, or form. Then he moves on to discuss what this kind of arrangement does to God's children. What it does to his children is it pollutes them. He goes on to say, the latter part of verse 15, Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. That idea of being separate really is boiled down into the word holy. That's what the word holy means. It means to be set apart, to be different. He goes on. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, when a Christian is married to a non-Christian, the pairing of the two is going to create a drag. And it creates a drag in three ways. First, by inhibiting the believer's walk with the Lord. How does it do this? Well, it does this by the believer now finding themselves being pulled in directions that they would otherwise never even think of going in. Another way is that the believer now is dragging with them through life the added weight of a spouse who's not interested in the things of God. 
They're pulling an extra load of heartache often, of disappointment, and of frustration, just to name a few. Also, the drag that's created will impair the believer's freedom in Christ. How? Well, one of the ways is it impairs their freedom to serve, the freedom to give everything that they have of their energies, of their time, that's not devoted to the ministry of family, to be given outside so that God's kingdom is advanced. One of the things I'm incredibly grateful for in my wife, in just a few months, we'll be married 10 years. And never once, with all the incredible opportunities and, 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 and places I've gone to serve the Lord in these 10 years of being married, has she ever once given me a look of displeasure because of the time that it was taking away from her or the, or the family? Now, that might be a, maybe a commentary on my presence at the house. I don't know. I don't think so. But she's never once complained. She's always given me the freedom. But I want you to hear these words from someone in our own congregation. You see, recently I, I was trying to get together with her to talk to her about this issue of being unequally yoked. Because I know that she is. And I wanted to simply get her take and her feedback. And so I had emailed her and given her a phone call wondering when we might be able to talk. And this is what she wrote to me in an email. She said in response to my uh, invitation to get together and find out what her life is like, she says, evenings are always harder because I need the permission of my husband to take time away from the family. And I've already been so blessed that he's allowed me to attend services weekly. God's moving in our lives constantly. And if I have enough advance notice, I have noticed that my husband is more willing to allow me to devote more time in ministry. Tell you what, something that comes through very vividly in that woman's words is a godly heart and a great attitude. She's accepted her situation and is in the Lord doing her best to make the best of it. But it's also clear that she has some considerations that perhaps a Christian couple would never have to make. And that's being sensitive to how their unbelieving spouse is going to be toward them investing their lives for God's service. They're also impaired in their freedom to simply use their time, talent, and treasure in a way that advances God's kingdom for the reason that oftentimes the resources God gives to us as believers for the one who's unequally yoked need to be spent just to survive, just to get through those days, weeks, perhaps months of discouragement, of even being depressed because of how difficult it is to love God and honor God and yet live in the condition of being unequally yoked. You see, for the man or woman who's living in this situation, they're almost living in two worlds. A world that so wants to follow and love God and at the same time has to make considerations for their spouse and be sensitive to their spouse in a way that can create conflict and tension stress, difficulty in their lives. And then lastly, the third drag that this creates is it creates an imbalance in the responsibilities of the marriage. You see, as Christians who are married, whether our spouse is a believer or not, we still have the call to maintain a biblical standard of morality, of stewardship, 
and of loyalty, of love. But one who lives in this situation might find that their spouse is constantly saying, Hey, sweetheart, let's go do this. And it may not be a Christian activity. Let's spend our money on this. And it may not be something that glorifies God. Or how about we make our life's aim to accomplish that? And that goal might not have anything to do with eternity. And so they find themselves having to really work sometimes against that in order to maintain their own loyalty toward God. And then perhaps this is an area where the drag is most punishingly felt. And that's the imbalance that's created in the raising of children in the Lord without the support or the backup of a Christian spouse to be there to reinforce the truth, to help to teach the truth, and to model the truth. This can be very difficult, folks. And for those who do not live in this situation, I want to issue a challenge to you. You might even be thinking, I'm not unequally yoked. I don't ever plan to be unequally yoked. So why does this message even apply to me? Well, if you're active in the body of Christ, especially a body that's as large as ours is, I'm almost positive that you know of somebody who's living unequally yoked. And what you can do is encourage them. You can be a source of strength and comfort for them. But some of you might also know of people, whether it's children in your own family that aren't yet married or those around you, you can utilize this perspective to motivate them, to encourage them to not go this route of becoming unequally yoked. So that's what it is. What I want to consider now are the paths to becoming unequally yoked. How does a person wake up and find themselves in this situation? Well, there's a few paths, and we'll consider some here. First, there's those who marry as an unbeliever. They got married. Neither they nor their spouse were believers. When this happens, there's no disobedience to God in having not obeyed the prohibition of do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. They were unbelievers. But at some point, one heard God's voice and they became a Christian. There's no accountability here to, the, uh, to a bad decision that they made to disobey God. They just didn't know. They got saved after they got married. And now they find themselves perhaps being married to an unbeliever. Another path is those who marry in ignorance. Here too, it's really not their fault. And here's a couple of ways in which this could happen. Perhaps this person goes to a, a non-biblical church. They're authentically alive in Jesus Christ. They know the Lord, but the church and the environment that they've grown up in does not teach the truth. Perhaps it's a liberal congregation where they don't take the word of God seriously, or perhaps it's a congregation that bases their church services more on what they would term as experiential Christianity, and to them the word only kind of gets in the way of worship. And so they never caught this passage in Scripture. They were never encouraged to read the Scripture themselves. And, and even when they did, they perhaps didn't understand what this passage fully meant. They were never told the truth. And then there's those who marry in ignorance as a result of flat-out unbiblical teaching. You see, sometimes churches are very skewed and, and 
not true in teaching what produces salvation. I'll give you an example. There's some churches that say as long as you're baptized in this church, it's a done deal. There's no follow-up with regard to how your life is supposed to evidence a transformation of a saved life in Jesus Christ. Or there's some churches that make it so easy. uh, They're often termed theologically as promoting easy believism. Just nod your head once, walk down the aisle once, and it's a done deal. doesn't matter how you live from here on out. So they might be erroneous when it comes to what produces salvation or also even what salvation looks like. Again, a lot of liberal congregations can produce this kind of confusion among their people. They might say, hey, as long as you're a good person, to them, the Christian, the only thing he really needs to look like is a humanitarian. This might be the guy who perhaps served some time in the Peace Corps and the TV show that he's most passionate about is Whale Wars on cable. He just gets him going. He said, wow, this is a swell guy. He looks like a winner. And they don't have any problem with them wedding a believer. I want you to hear these words from a woman who found herself in this situation. She says, finally one night, My husband came home drunk, and I started crying hysterically and asked him how he could have lied to me about being a believer. This is the beginning words of one who followed a third path, and that's one who marries in deception. They got conned. They got duped by a smooth talker, someone who did a great job pretending They were a believer. For those who are deceived like this, sometimes it's the result of a lack of discernment on their part. Or maybe an immaturity or just a youthfulness in Christ. Perhaps they grew up in such a a well-protected environment, they were naive to how evil and deceptive some people can really be. So they were the victim of somebody's very good acting. You know, the scripture does say that it's not until the end that we're going to know actually of those among us who are the wheat, the Christians, and who are the tares, the non-Christians. Because as Jesus even said, they grow up together. And so often it's difficult to discern who's who. This sister in the Lord goes on to say, after she asked her husband, how could you have lied to me? He told me it was because he didn't want to lose me. He thought he could handle the religion bit. But he found out that he couldn't. We talked all night. We laid down some ground rules so our whole marriage wouldn't go on the rocks. But I can tell you I was so discouraged I almost died. I was also embarrassed in front of my Christian friends to admit that I had been so stupid. One of them reminded me that everyone had been taken by Dan's performance. I don't know if he'll ever come to Christ. I'm so fearful because he knew so much and then rejected it. It's not as if he didn't have any knowledge or understanding of the scriptures. He knows who he is rejecting and what the consequences of his decision are. And he uses that sickening joke that if he goes to hell, all of his friends will be there. So at least he won't be alone. He just doesn't care. Can it happen? Yes, and unfortunately, it does happen for some. Another path is those who get married in haste and in isolation. 
You see, they didn't give their relationship enough time to be tested. They didn't allow themselves to be in a number of situations with their spouse-to-be to find out what they're really made of and how they would react in certain situations. And the isolation refers to those who didn't allow those that are closest to the Lord and closest to them to ever spend any time with them and the person that they're looking to marry. Things happen so fast that they wake up one morning realizing that they've married someone who's not really saved. And then the last path we'll consider are those that get married in arrogant disobedience. You see, these are the people who simply thought they were smarter than God. This is the person that you know knows the truth. And you might even approach them and appeal to them that they're not making a wise decision. And their response is, I know, but... And the guy might say, but she's so hot. The girl might say, oh, but he's so cute. My friends, that comes with a price. And that price is great. This person dupes themselves into thinking, oh, you know what? I'll bring them to the Lord. You just wait. I'll make sure they get saved. If there be any of you here that are playing with fire and thinking any of those thoughts or thoughts like them, let me appeal to you to wise up. You know, as I was thinking back to the 60s, I was thinking back to 67, I did a little bit of research, and uh, in the fall of of 66, uh, Steppenwolf uh, recorded that song, Born to be Wild. And I was listening to that song, kind of just thinking about the era, and I thought, you know what, They're, they're partially right. Unsaved, we're born wild. But for anybody in a situation where they're playing with fire and dabbling with the idea of marrying an unbeliever, let me just tell you something. Though you might have been born to be wild, we're born again to be wise. So I want to encourage you, wise up. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And those who play with this fire usually reap the whirlwind. You see a a very old analogy that's also very accurate is the idea of there being a table. And on top of the table is standing the Christian. And the person standing on the floor at the foot of the table is the non-Christian. And the non-Christian who wants to get into this enterprise of, of, of playing with fire is the one who reaches down and says, come on up here, I'll bring you up into God's kingdom. While the unbeliever below... Their goal is to say, hey, no, let's have more fun down here. And physics, gravity, it'll always point to the fact that the person on the ground, they have the upper hand. They have the greater advantage. Seldom does that believer ever bring the unbeliever up to the Lord. Of all these paths, those who found themselves unequally yoked as a result of this path usually experience the greatest misery. You see, they were already spiritually compromised, even playing with this fire, that once they get married and realize what a mistake they might have made, they're weakened in their ability to survive this kind of union. 
Yes, if they cry out to God, he'll meet them where they're at. He'll give them strength. But again, oftentimes they were in such a spiritually weakened state already that God's voice has grown dull to them. They're weak spiritually as it is, and it's very difficult. So as we've considered the prohibition and some of the paths, I want to now consider the predicament of being unequally yoked. What if you're that woman that whether it was as a result of some regrettable, arrogant disobedience or you got saved after you got married, what do you do now? What do you do now? Again, so that we as a congregation are able to appreciate the challenges that those men and women who live in unequally yoked marriages face, I want to read to you a few stories. First, there's what uh, Lee Strobel recalls in a book called Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch. He's done a lot of ministry to people who find themselves mismatched. And in his book, he writes this. Once my wife and I got a phone call at 3.30 p.m. on Easter. Teresa was crying. Holidays are the worst, she said between sobs. But today he really went too far. He's been making fun of me, saying I'm weak, saying I believe ridiculous things, saying the church is just trying to get my money. I'm tired of defending myself. I don't know what to do anymore. Why don't he just let me believe what I want? Why does he have to ruin everything? It was bad enough having to go to Easter service by myself, but why does he have to destroy the rest of my day too? Strobel goes on to write, or consider Kathy. She said her anguish over her marital situation has only been amplified by her church and Christian friends who inadvertently make matters worse for her. There's this underlying implication, she says, that if I would just be a better witness, if I just prayed harder, if I just get him to come to Christmas services, if I just give him the right book to read or the tape to listen to, that somehow everything would just work out, she said. They don't come right out and say it, but I get the feeling that I'm the one at fault in their minds. And that hurts. And then there's Linda Davis, who lived for years in an unequally yoked marriage until her husband became a Christian. She said the only lonelier plight for an unequally yoked person would be the death of her spouse. I doubt, however, she said, that even physical widowhood makes a woman feel as rejected and inadequate as does spiritual widowhood. The spiritual widow receives no flowers or sympathy cards. She simply grieves in silence for a union that never was. This is serious business, folks. This is a difficult situation for those who are in it. And again, those who yet have the choice of who they're going to marry, you have ample reason to avoid it. So what do you do when you're unequally yoked? Let me tell you first what not to do unequivocally do not divorce you see in the next two weeks we're going to deal with the subject of divorce in greater detail but i'm going to just tell you right now there's only two provisions that the scripture gives for a christian divorcing their spouse these are two permissions that god grants to the believer and those provisions are in the case of adultery and in the case of abandonment the first Adultery. Let me give you some scripture references to uh, read at a later time so you understand where the scripture is coming from. There's Matthew chapters 5 and 19. There's Mark chapter 10. 
in Luke chapter 16. And then with regard to abandonment, there's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Those are the only two provisions for divorce. Now, I have actually had brothers and sisters in Christ as we discuss this issue look me in the eye and tell me, you know what? That's easy for you to say. You don't live in my misery. I understand. I don't want to do anybody's situation an injustice by pretending that I understand how hard it is for you. I do want you to know that God does understand. God's not forgotten you. God knows where you're at. But just to be clear here, I'm not saying it. It's actually Jesus and Paul who are saying it. Don't divorce. For this, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. Paul is writing to what can be considered hands down the most carnal church of the first century, the Corinthian church. They were having a difficult time walking in truth and knowing when to throw out the garbage. So Paul, to this group of people, writes in verse 10, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled back to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, just a side note here so you understand what's being said. When Paul says here, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, he's referencing back to something that Jesus himself addressed. In the verse in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, Jesus says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So he's saying Jesus himself spoke to this issue. But then he goes on to say in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7, But to the rest, I, not the Lord. In other words, we don't have a record that Jesus himself addressed this issue. So I'm saying, if a brother has a wife who does not believe, and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So this might be the situation where, no, they're not jiving on the same level spiritually, but even the unbelieving spouse would say, I love you. I don't want a divorce. I'm willing to live with you. I know things aren't as easy as we both had hoped, but I'm still in it. I'm still here. I don't want to leave. So if they're willing to stay then let them stay, remain married. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. That idea of sanctified also refers to the idea of being set apart. This is uh, one of the better ways that I can think of, of how this can be understood. Let's say you have a husband and a wife and let's say on the wife's side of the family, uh, a family member uh, dies and leaves an inheritance to the wife. And so that inheritance is, let's say, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And that inheritance gets deposited in the husband and wife's joint bank account. That husband had no, no relationship 
to the deceased other than through marriage to this woman who had relationship. And so even as a result of that, he gets blessed. He's able to be set apart for that blessing. Now, when it refers to sanctified, it doesn't mean that he's being made more like Jesus in the same respect as a Christian, but he's getting to experience some of the blessings of God as a result of the splash that's coming off of his spouse. And so therefore, he is set apart and she is set apart, even if they're unbelieving. Otherwise, he goes on to say, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. They're set apart. They're under my covering. I'm still working in your family through you as the believer. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know? And he asks a great question here that should encourage any person living in an unequally yoked union. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether or not you will save your wife? Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that the husband or the wife has the ability to forgive sins like Jesus and save the person. But it speaks more so, how do you know that you're not going to be the primary agency through which I work to get your spouse's attention? If you leave now, you could be upsetting the whole plan. So hang in there. And don't fall victim to the temptation of divorcing. You know, it's just like Pastor Skip said, Satan is like a woodpecker. He likes to find your weakest, softest, most vulnerable spot and then start pecking away until he makes an impact. And this is one of the areas where Satan really likes to get at the unequally yoked. With regard to having a spouse that's not yet saved, I want to share with you the experience and the attitude of a sister in the Lord who found herself in that situation. She writes, when I found this out, I was devastated. I felt guilty. In a way, I was almost sorry that I was saved. I felt as if I had deserted my husband. Then I was struck with the awful truth that every unequally yoked wife has to face. Whether she married in disobedience to God or whether God ordained her to be that way. And that is that if my husband dies, he's going to hell. That is still the worst part of it all, she continued. I so much want Clint to know the love of God the way I do. I cannot bear the thought of him spending eternity apart from me and our children and the Lord. I'm just depending upon God to finish the job he started when he drew me into the fold. That's a woman that despite the heartache, despite the difficulties, no matter how much pressure it was putting on her, she loved her husband the way Christ loved us and was willing to suffer for us that we might be saved. Great attitude. So, that's what not to do. Don't get divorced. Well, now what do I do, Neil? Well, in a word, imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. For this... I want us to go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And as you're turning there, let me give you some background. Peter is writing to a group of believers, many of them who were in a situation of being indentured servants, slaves, bond servants. They were coming to Christ. And their reasoning was this, I'm now free in Christ, therefore... Why should I still be a slave 
to my master? Can we just leave? Can we ditch this place? Can we, can we escape? Can we sneak out? And Peter writes these words to those in that situation. Beginning in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear or reverence. Not only to the good and gentle, but even to the harsh. For this is actually commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering even wrongfully. They didn't deserve it. Totally wrong that they're suffering in the way that they are. He says this is commendable to God if you do it for conscience sake to please God. He continues in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Hey, you might have deserved it. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. You know what this is? This is one of those wake-up moments like, whoa, this is a heavy implication of having given my life over to Christ. At this point, you're thinking, I don't know that this is what I signed up for. Is it really this way? And if so, why? Why is it this way? He answers that. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Remember, Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Or that latter part can be understood as this. He committed himself to God who knows the truth. You know, wives, husbands, those of you that are unequally yoked, there's those times where you're suffering because of your obedience to God. But because of conscience toward God, you're not going to compromise the truth. You're going to endure just as Jesus exemplified for us. And it might be that even in your own household, the only other being that really knows that what you're suffering has no reason for it is God. That there's no reason why you should be suffering the way you are. Your solace at times has to be that God knows the truth. And Jesus was our example of that. The passage goes on, verse 24 Referring to Christ, who himself bore our sins by his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That refers to his pain in his sacrifice, his patience, what he gave up that we might be saved. For you were all like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And here's the point. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Wives, likewise. That word likewise ties the thought that's coming up with the thought that he just finished. Like what? Like who? Like Christ. Wives, likewise. Be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, 
Do not let your adornment be merely outward. And I really appreciate that verse because it doesn't say don't let it be merely outward or, or don't be outward at all. It says in addition to it being outward, the arranging of the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel, rather let it be in the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted God had also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That doesn't refer to some kind of weird trip that you have to lay on your wife, that she has to look at you almost like royalty. It means that you're acknowledging your husband as your husband. That he is who he is. He's that man that God's put in your life. That your prayers, or he goes on to say, being submissive to your own husbands, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. But he doesn't leave the husbands out. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Husbands, likewise, in the same manner. He says, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. Even if she doesn't believe, give honor to her as the more precious, the more delicate, the more fragile in a beautiful, priceless sense, vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Let me give you a quick list of some additional things to do if you find yourself unequally yoked. First thing, it's very obvious, but it can't go without being said. And that's pray without ceasing. You see, the Christian life is difficult. And the world is, as A.W. Tozer said, it's not a playground, it's a battleground. But for most of us, our house is kind of a retreat. But for the unequally yoked, oftentimes, house is also a battleground. So pray without ceasing. Next, pray that God provides you with a cheering section in your life. Get involved in the church as much as you can so that you're connected to his people. There are ways in which God uses brothers and sisters in the congregation to compensate for what the spouse that's not a believer isn't able to give to you as a believer. And God can give you wisdom and encouragement and strength and perspective as you interact with the body of Christ in ways that are necessary for you to survive your situation. Find even one or two individuals that can function as a cheerleader for you. That when you have those down moments of discouragement, of frustration, you can reach out to them and they can lift you up. They can encourage you. You know, we also have a ministry that recently started here at Calvary called In Good Company. And it's for women who find themselves in unequally yoked marriages. They meet every other Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 10 o'clock here at room M19 on the campus. They're going to meet this Friday. They'd love to have you join them, ladies, if you find yourself needing encouragement for this. Another thing I encourage you to do is produce realistic expectations. Accept your life as it is this day as a calling from God. And even if your spouse doesn't know the Lord, I'm grateful that you do and that God has a door into their lives through your life because they too need to get saved. They need to know God's forgiveness. In this, I also want to encourage you to not be surprised when an unbeliever acts like one. Learn 
to have a realistic, realistic expectation of how your spouse is probably going to act in any given situation. And don't be so surprised. Realize that disappointment and achievement are a part of everyone's life, even Christians. Another thing I want to encourage you to do is to be authentic in your love for God and in your love for your spouse. Again, as articulated by Peter in the passage we just read, you need to love your spouse like God loves us. In that, as the scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Totally unworthy of such love, yet he loved us anyway. Also, be flexible. Be flexible. I'm not asking you to compromise the truth and meet him 50-50 or her 50-50. Be true to the Lord, but be flexible. Not in truth, but perhaps in preferences. Give a little. Sacrifice. Die to yourself that you might keep a good relationship with your spouse. And then also, be hopeful. Be hopeful. You don't know if God might use your life, even if it's years ahead, to bring them to a relationship with him. But let me also give you four don'ts. These are very serious don'ts if you find yourself in this situation. Don't talk down to your spouse. Don't talk to them as a spiritual elitist. Oh, you couldn't possibly understand this. Oh, of course you wouldn't get that. You're not even saved. Don't talk down to them. Also, don't overlook the good. If you have a spouse that's a good provider, a good encouragement, somebody that's loyal to you and, and really is doing their part to raise your children, don't overlook those things, even if they don't know the Lord. Be grateful for them. Another thing don't beat your spouse over the head with your Bible. You see, this is often one of those loopholes that people think they can find. If I just beat him over the head with the Bible enough, then I'm going to be able to take advantage of that abandonment provision because I'm going to chase him away. Uh, we as pastors love to try to intervene in marriages that, that are going in the direction of divorce. And there are times where it becomes clear to us that the believer is wanting to divorce their unbelieving spouse. And, and you find out, that believer has made life so miserable, anybody'd want to leave. That's not an excuse, and that's not something that we should do if we find ourselves in this situation. And finally, don't isolate your spouse from yourself or from your children if you have children. You see, the unbelieving spouse, if this occurs, they'll find themselves, they'll feel themselves falling down lower and lower on your priority list. They'll feel it. And they'll often be retaliatory. They don't like it. They didn't expect it from marriage either. And realize something for the unequally yoked. The unbelieving spouse, they're not the one that changed. You did. So cut them some slack. And don't create separation. Live in such a way that you don't allow your spouse to become jealous of Jesus. But even being an unbeliever, they actually are thankful to Jesus. That, wow, maybe I don't believe that stuff, but my wife, wow, she's an amazing woman. Or my husband, wow, he's an amazing man. Let them be thankful, not jealous of God. And then lastly, in closing... For those of you who are, again, in a situation where you have perhaps a choice to make of who you're going to marry yet, 
I want to consider the prevention for becoming unequally yoked. You know, as I was thinking of these preventions, I thought of what a farmer might say if he looked out onto the field and he saw somebody purposefully making an unequal yoke as they were going to plow the land. And if he was a kind farmer, he'd probably say, oh, that poor child, they don't have a clue as to what they're doing, but they'll find out soon enough. If if he wasn't so kind, perhaps the farmer would say, stupid fool, they're as dumb as an ox. Amos chapter 3 verse 3 asks a great rhetorical question. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? No. That's the answer. They can't. Not fully. Not as God intended it. So what are good preventatives? Well, first, make sure that you operate out of a pure, undiluted dose of the truth. Consider the scriptures we've already referred to tonight. But for a later time, let me give you a passage in Ezra that you want to read. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, and verses 12 through 15. It's an example of even in the Old Testament, God's people making the wrong choice in defiling themselves with others that they had no business with. And then also, if you're tempted with this situation, if you're still unclear, let me encourage you to take the time to come and counsel with us pastors. We'd love to sit down with you and show you from the scriptures why this is so important, reinforce some of the things I shared with you tonight. But also, you could handle a dose of truth, not only from the scriptures, but from those who've suffered through being unequally yoked. There are success stories of what some people erroneously call missionary dating, but they're the extreme exception to the rule, the truth, the command to not being unequally yoked. You see, there's something that's a drag more than being alone, and that's being married to somebody who doesn't love Jesus. Refer back also in your mind to King Solomon's example. His life really turned topsy-turvy when he started accumulating wives from pagan cultures. And then there's uh, perhaps the most notorious example, and that of Samson. He just couldn't keep his eyes off of that Philistine woman named Delilah. And that's where his troubles began and ultimately ended up in his demise. Or, ladies, if, if you find yourself playing with fire or being tempted to do so, go visit the women of In Good Company. I'm sure they'll give you some, some real good wake-up calls as to why you need to honor the Scripture and not become unequally yoked. Another preventative, don't think you're smarter than God. I want you to turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Because as we read the verses that just preceded where we begin tonight, give some really interesting insight as to the condition that exists for those who are more vulnerable to becoming unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Think of also the emotion with which Paul is saying these words. He says, O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open, but you're not restricted by us. You're restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. 
He says, don't let your passions, your affections get the best of you. You don't have to turn there, but a very interesting verse out of Proverbs 22, verse 3, which says, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the foolish, the simple pass on and are punished. You've seen the warning signs. Don't forsake them and get punished. And don't allow yourself to become infatuated with a non-Christian. Another proverb says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Guard your heart. Don't missionary date. I serve as the missions pastor here at Calvary. I've read a lot of missions material. Never have I come across this approach to reaching the world for Christ known as missionary dating. It's prohibited by the scriptures. Beware of the dating traps. Have a simple rule. If they're not a believer, you don't even consider them as one to date, much less marry. And then lastly, trust but verify. Great words from the late President Ronald Reagan. Trust but verify. Naivete is not a Christian virtue. Give enough time to your relationship and give enough exposure of it For the prospective spouse to have their fruit be inspected and verified as authentic. Bring them around the body of Christ. Again, we as pastors would love to spend time with you and help you to discern really where this person might be coming from. Trust but verify. So in closing, to those who live in an unequally yoked situation, I want to encourage you to trust uh, trust God's love for you that he's not forgotten you, that he knows you, he knows your situation, that if you call out to him, he will answer, he will be faithful, but cling to him. Feed off of his truth, his faithfulness, and his people. And remember ultimately that no matter what the situation be, our number one motive for obedience to God always must be our love for God. Anything else would be an ulterior motive, even putting your love for your spouse and and, and priority of a spouse in front of a love for God when it comes to obeying God. So that no matter what your situation is, you're always motivated by the right things. And to the rest, become a cheerleader for those who find themselves in the situation. Become a support to them. And then for those around you who aren't yet married, teach them and encourage them not to play with fire so that they themselves might avoid becoming unequally yoked. I want to close with the story of Isabel Kuhn. She was a popular author and missionary to China. She was married to John, a man just as strong-willed and stubborn as she was. The two had many conflicts. John, for example, had a male cook in China to whom... He was really faithful and he wanted to keep him, but whom Isabel couldn't stand and wanted him fired. Tensions grew. Isabel sulked and stewed and finally she exploded. She and John had a blazing argument. Stuffing her hat on her head, Isabel stomped out of the house, through town, and onto the plain, boiling with rage. She said to herself, I'm not going to live with a man who gives a lazy servant preference over his wife. She walked for hours, enraged, not caring where she went. Finally, she returned home, but the situation remained tense, although John told Isabel she could dismiss the servant. When the local church leaders visiting 
wanted to know why the cook had been fired, John wouldn't back Isabel. And he didn't hire anyone else, sending all the domestic duties on her. Other issues soon arose. For a long time, the marriage was painful and stressed. But John and Isabel were committed to the Lord. They were committed to growing in their personal spiritual maturity and to working and maintaining their relationship, however difficult it seemed. Furthermore, Isabel admitted that she had nowhere to go. She often walked out on John, but in that remote region of China, there was nowhere for her to go. The two finally built a satisfying, fulfilling marriage. But near the end of her life, Isabel wrote these words. I feel many modern marriages are wrecked on sharp shoals just like this. A human weakness is pointed out. The correction is resented. Arguments grow bitter. People are not ready to forgive, not willing to endure. Divorce is too quickly seized upon as the way out. But to pray to God to awaken the other person, to be patient until he does so, this is God's way out. And it can mold the two opposite natures into one invincible whole. So to those who are unequally yoked, I leave you with these words. How do you know, O wife, whether you will be the one that God uses to bring your husband into the kingdom? And how do you know, O husband, whether God will be using you to bring your wife into the kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we do commit our brothers and sisters who find themselves in this situation to you, God, asking that you would comfort and strengthen them. And of those among us here who are yet making the decision of who to marry, may tonight be a sobering reminder or even a wake-up call to not play with fire, to trust you as the one who knows best and has declared what needs to be done, that they might be equally yoked and in doing so serve you with greater freedom and greater capacity, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.